Welcome to the God is not an asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your host, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self. Hey friends, we are here today with Kat Armas. She is the author of Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength, uh, which was published in 2021. And before we stop today, I want to ask her about her her new book, but we won't get to that yet. Um, Kat has an MDiv and a Master's of Theology from Fuller Theology. Theological Seminary. She's a Cuban-American writer and speaker. She hosts the Protagonistas podcast, where she highlights stories of everyday women of color, including writers, pastors, church leaders, and theologians. She has written for Christianity Today, Sojourners, Relevant, Christians for Biblical Equality, Fuller Youth Institute, Fathom Magazine, and Missio Alliance. She also works on the Living a Better Story Project at the Fuller Youth Institute and speaks regularly at conferences on race and justice. And the way that I made this great discovery of uh, Kat Armas is um, I make a point of reading books by women, probably maybe 30 books by women every year, but certainly at least two-thirds of those are by women of color and so my algorithms are set for recommendations. <laughs> and, you know, this popped up uh, some time ago last last summer, I guess, and I just went right through it. And so I would like for, for uh, Kat to tell some of her story, even though it is something of a memoir uh, when you read the book. But uh, please introduce us to to why you wrote this, what you are about, and it's, what is it about? Yes, well, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, and I love that your algorithm does the work for you. <laughs> you, don't <need> to, <laughs> you don't need to do any of the extra work. I think that's the way it should be. You know, we talk about all the horrors of the internet, but hey, if we got good algorithms, I think it's super helpful. <laughs> so true. So yeah. True. So... Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm Cuban American and, and I'm originally from Miami, Florida. And I always make sure to specify that because that, you know, is really what my book is, is stemmed upon my experiences growing up in a culture where my culture was the dominant culture, right? I mean, growing up in Miami, primarily made up of uh, Latinos, but, you know, mostly Cuban Americans. And obviously that's changing as the years, you know, change and as we get further and further from the, re- the Cuban revolution. But but yeah, I mean, it was just a predominantly uh, Latinx area. And so 
like I said, my culture was the dominant culture. And I was raised by a single mother and a single grandmother in an immigrant Roman Catholic community. And so that really shaped how I understood and how I understand the world. Um, you know, my my grandmother and my mother were both mother and father, right? Providers for me. They taught me um, how to be assertive and stand up for myself and all of the things that, you know, um, a single mother would teach her daughter and also her granddaughter. Uh, and also coming from an immigrant Roman Catholic community, you know, the sacraments were such a big part of my my life and, and the mm. saints and, you know, altars and all of these um, physical, right? And as for something I love about the sacraments, it's something I love about Catholicism really is just the, the materiality when it comes to um, spirituality. Like I said, the altars and the saints and, you know, the rosaries and everything, you, you know, you touch these things with your hands and you hold, you know, these things are, are you kneel down, you know, when you come to an altar and you place physical things there. And I think that was all such a big part of my, how I understood my spirituality. And I think that was a, a big part of how I understood just the spirituality of my community and how, um, you know, I would, I talk about an Awalita faith and how I would go visit, you know, my grandmother's friends and they would have these big statues of San Lazaro, you know, which was the patron saint of the Cubans. And it was scary for me as a child sometimes, you know, you see Lazaro's wounds and the dog licking his wounds. But I think for me, it, it really spoke to um, the hope of a community and, and just the physical, what, you know, what physical signs or, or things they needed in order to, to, you know, be, remain hopeful and find strength. And so, yeah. And it wasn't until I left, you know, my setting, my Cuban haven of Miami um, to enter the subculture of the subculture of white evangelicalism in the South that, um, you know, I just was met with like many um, existential crises, I would say. First of all, being a woman, right? Being a woman in a context in which women were told to be submissive and, you know, that men must lead them, where I never experienced that because I was raised again by single, you know, women, (laughs) where I never had a man that I had to submit to, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, that and, and just, you know, the overall, you know, racist and sexist and all the things that come with the, uh, being in that culture as a Cuban woman, as a woman. And, and yeah, and so that's really where I began to wrestle with this idea of Abuelita theology and Abuelita faith. Um, when so much of what I was being taught by the white man at the pulpit with the suits and the quote-unquote right theology was just not um, fitting with my lived experience. And not just mine, but the lived experiences of everybody in my community. You know, it just did not make sense. So what I began to wrestle is everyone and the faith of my ancestors, the faith of my community is all of that wrong, is all of that, you know, not not right, not genuine, not true. Um, And I was legitimately being told that it wasn't, you know, I was legitimately being told that no, I needed to evangelize, save my grandmother who was just so dedicated to the church and so dedicated to her faith, albeit it did not look the way that white evangelicalism said it must look like. So that was, you know, just my sparkling and my, excuse me, my, what sparked and what my, what sparked my wrestling with this idea of like, well, wait a minute, what if, you know, the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians? Mm. You know, white evangelicalism would not consider my abuela a genuine theologian. She was not educated, you know, by Western standards. She, I mean, she didn't have past of elementary school education. You know, I mean, she grew up in the countryside and then 
um, she was an immigrant. She, when she got to this country, she didn't know the language. She was poor. She was a widow. You know, all of these realities that marginalized her and she would never be considered a genuine theologian. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I think she is the greatest theologian and not just her, but women like her. So yeah, that's a, you know, what I want to faith, where it came from and, and really what it's about. Boy, this is, I mean, I connect with, with your story so well. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not C- Cuban American, uh, I just connect with it that, you know, when you talked about San Lazaro, you know, Lazarus is is a big figure in African-American preaching. You know, yeah, one of our yeah. uh, leading preachers one year, you know, he preached and it was recorded and kind of went, uh, at least at that time, the closest thing to viral uh, pre-internet. Mm-hmm. But uh, it still resonates with a lot of people called Treat Lazarus Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the title of the the sermon. And uh, so I, I connect with that, and uh, al- also your perception, or at least how you were being led to perceive Roman Catholicism. You know, I can remember in my days uh, where my mind was still under the influence of uh, of whiteness. I I remember my friend and I we would go to Santa Clara Church, and we would pass out tracts uh, mm, to the right. people. <laughs> coming to mass so that <laughs> they could get saved, which leads me right. to, well, yeah, go ahead, uh, weigh in on that. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, which is just so uh, twisted, right? And so what what a contorted and twist. I mean, not just you, it's just what we what we believe in. I really, yeah. and I think that's what, what I was saying led to, you know, some, this, these existential crises, because imagine, I mean, that's all I know about faith, about God, and I'm being told that, you know, my entire community, my entire belief system, everything I know about myself, you know, I was deceived, right? I was Mm. deceived by the devil. And that really, I mean, that is a form, that is a form of trauma. (laughs) You think about it, right? To believe that you, you know, that everything that you've ever known about yourself and about spirituality is a deception of the devil. I mean, that is, that is really twisted, (laughs) right? So anyways, I, yeah, I totally, I'm totally with you. (laughs) So, let, let me ask, do you feel in some ways that your journey through, uh, you know, a manipulative kind of faith has permanently scarred you in some way? So that's a great question. And I think about this a lot because I think I was spared in some way because I did not, I was not raised by white in white evangelicalism, right? I think a lot of people it's like, you know, you have this awakening 30, 40, whatever years later. And it feels like, for example, you know, my spouse, he, he was raised in this context. And so what he started, when his eyes started opening to it, you know, he felt like I lost so much of my life. I lost so much of my childhood. I lost so much of my, you know, whatever years, years and years. Whereas I think for me, um, because I stepped into, you know, I sort of fumbled my way into evangelicalism in my early twenties. And I was, I mean, it, it wasn't many, many years before. I mean, it was maybe two, three years, maybe four years. So, you know, it wasn't very long before I realized, wait a minute, something is off. Like this is not, this does not compute type of thing, you know? Um, and that happened fairly quickly. And I think because of the fact that I was raised in the context that I was raised Mm in by the women that I was raised by, you know, I think that that, um, I, you know, I, I wasn't as jaded by many folks, understandably who are jaded. I mean, I completely understand the jadedness 
Um, And so I think that was helpful for me. And so I was able to step out of it and see all of the things that a lot of folks around me, because they were raised in it, couldn't see. And and by that, I just mean when I, you know, was attending seminary in the subculture of the subculture of white evangelicalism, a lot of the friends that I made were white, raised in that context at that time. And, you know, I was seeing things that they were like, but what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? You know, like I was using the word cult back then and people were like, what? How dare you use that word? You know, but I was like, no, you need to say that this is a cult, you know? So anyway, I think um, it was, you know, I had that sort of advantage, if you want to call it that. Yeah. When, yeah. You know, I have thought that. I don't know how much I've actually said it, but you articulated you uh, you identified it as a cult. And, um, you know, I think it's become quite manifest these days that it is. But can you tell us what you mean by that? (laughs) Yes, I'm glad that you asked me to specify that. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I I haven't thought through this too much or read too much on like what an actual cult is. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm I'm probably not the best person to answer this question. Although I will say there are cult-ish tendencies, right? You you say you have not studied what a cult is, but the definition of a cult was probably uh, framed by somebody who was a part of that cult. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I guess I would say this idea of power and the idea of authority and how it's wielded by one person or one group of people with power and authority to, you know, to subjugate and keep people subjugated by their way of thinking, their way of being, their way of knowing, you know, that's sort of my understanding of it. And so when I say that, you know, I was using that word back then, I was, you know, I was in a small church, a church plant. And I wrote about this in Awalita Faith, but the pastor, you know, began saying that I was quote unquote unsubmissive because I reached out to a bunch of women to read the Bible with them. You know, I met that 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 was so important to me, right? Quote unquote discipleship. And and so I was just doing what I believed what I needed to do as a follower of Jesus. I was discipling women, right? And it was just reading the Bible. It wasn't, you know, and I was in seminary. I felt like I was someone that wasn't out of nowhere to like not be trusted. And I was a, a faithful person in this church, but I didn't ask the pastor for permission to do this. Wow. And therefore I was unsubmissive to his authority. And so it was in that context that I was using, you know, that word cult, <laughs> like, you know, it was, it was very yeah. much that we need to submit to this man, um, who can t- tell us, you know, what we can do or what we can't do. Or, you know, he was playing this godlike figure. Like it was as if he was God, you know. And, and I remember one time I went to like this interfaith gathering and, you know, I was just meeting people and hanging out with people. And and they were so alarmed that I went to this interfaith gathering and they said that I committed a sin of omission because I did not tell the church that I was going to do this. <laughs> you know, things like that, yeah, that I'm yeah. like, that is cultish, right? Like that is a cult. So it was just, you know, and again, it's when people feel threatened. And again, you know, I was a woman, I was, a, I was not a white woman in the way that they understand whiteness. And I was from, I was not from their culture. I was not from their, you know, um, and here I am, you know, doing things that are outside of what um, submissive, you know, women would do. And that's for permission or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I was in that context where I'm like, guys, this is a cult. You know, we must submit to this man's authority in ways that are not asked of us in scripture or in just anywhere, you know? You know, as you say that, you reminded me of an experience I had several years ago in Toronto 
uh, I, I was attending, I was in fact, in fact invited to make a presentation at the Parliament of the World's Religions. And mm-hmm. I remember I made my presentation as though I were preaching to the choir. And mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. when it was over, when I opened the floor, I got cordial pushback from people mm-hmm. finding out later that there were several white evangelicals who were attending this but I never expected, because I had a similar, you know, <laughs> background to yours in some ways, that they would even register for something like this, mm, uh, right, you know, yeah. without the uh, without the motivation to come and getting everybody saved. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> right. you know, that's, I you, and I, uh, I quoted you back in uh, d- during Black History Month. Actually, mm. I was uh, I made a couple of speeches. Uh, to uh, for a couple of events uh, here in Southern California, and uh, I want to just read to you uh, mm-hmm. what what I was saying and how I used your words to illuminate what I was saying. Oh, I would love to hear that. Yeah. Okay. So I I said like many of us, this God has caused people who have been trampled upon to ask questions about the faith system they were sold because it has not worked for them. Cuban-American writer and podcaster Kat Armas asked herself, can this Christ, the one who has infiltrated much of our theology and mission efforts, the Christ who is white, elite, and of European descent be redeemed? Is this the Jesus who saved me, or could there be another Christ? So, you know, that Mm. I felt that was particularly relevant to, to, I think, the thinking of so many people uh, many people who are churched and mm-hmm. and they're still, you know, they're finding their way. They're trying to figure out you know, who is Jesus and and what have right. I experienced in fact? Can you elaborate a, a, a bit? Yeah, well, I'm honored that you would quote me in in your speech, particularly in Black Black History Month. So, thank you for that. But um, yeah, I I feel like for me, it w- it really was this this meeting a new Jesus, you know, I, in Naulita's faith, I talk about, um, and I, I quote Miguel de la Torre on this, but Jesus of los humildes, Jesus of the humble, right? Mm-hmm. And there really is like these two Christs that we come into contact with. There is the Jesus that is white elite, right? The one that comes like in the, the on the horse with the weapons and, you know, whatever, the, the one that wants to destroy and rule and the powerful Jesus. And then there's the one that, you know, that's in the Bible, which is just so interesting because that, so that Jesus that begins in the manger sort of becomes this um, warrior Christ, right? Um, he, he kind of transforms. And, and I, I do believe a big, a large part of that is because, you know, a lot of the Western church reads scripture as if they're Israel when the Western church is not Israel. The Western church is Babylon or Egypt or Mm -hmm. one of the oppressive empires. Right. But we have so convinced ourselves that we are, you know, marginalized and oppressed Israel and that we must, you know, fight back the oppressors when it's like, well, maybe if we actually saw ourselves in the position that we are actually in, and that is oppressive, you know, Egypt. But anyway, um, yeah, and I, I I sort of like came in contact with this Jesus of Los Humildes. And I, when I began to, you know, see Jesus through the context of my abuela, through the context of my community and realizing that the Jesus that my community, the Jesus that, uh, that my abuela trusts in is not the powerful, you know, elite coming on a white horse Jesus. I mean, it is the Jesus that meets her at the well. You know, as I talk about in Ayuelita's faith, a lot of 
you know, our marginalized abuelitas, a lot of our, uh, you know, these people, you know, these, and as in these people, like my grandmother and her, her community, they don't have to work very hard to see themselves in the story, right? Like when Abuela reads the story of the woman at the well, she's actually the woman at the well. She doesn't have to envision what it would be like to be the woman at the well. And I think for for many of us with varying levels of privilege and particularly those in the Western church, it takes a lot of imagination to see yourself in these stories because, you know, it's our lived experiences are so different um, than many of those struggling to survive as our abuelitas do. And so, yeah, I was met with these two contrasting Christs. And that's when I, you know, I realized I need to put, you know, put to death this, this ruling powerful warrior Christ that white evangelicalism had me put my salvation in. Um, that is not the Christ that we see in scripture. And that is not the Christ that our abuelitas um, glean hope and salvation and strength from. You you use the term meeting a new Jesus, and I, I'm sure in your research and your studies, you had these thoughts at some point. Has this Jesus always been around, or did this Jesus resurface? Uh, you know, in some kind of post-colonial era. Uh, ha, ha, has so? Let me ask you: Has this Jesus mm-hmm. always been present? Has there been a consciousness of this Jesus always? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think in, and I love that you use, you know, the term post-colonial, because I, I think in in the post-colonial subject, yes, right? I think of, in, in Aulita Feta, I write about Gloria Ansaldo, or sorry, well, I write about Gloria Ansaldo, but I'm, I'm thinking of the Guatemalan um, activist, so Rigoberta Menchu, she's a Guatemalan activist, and she won the Nobel Peace Prize. And right. Yeah, in in Aulita Faith, I talk about how, you know, she was part of the indigenous or she is an indigenous Guatemalan. And in her story during the Guatemalan Civil War, you had the oppressors, I mean, literally backed by with with U.S., you know, weaponry, backed by the U.S. You had the oppressors who, you know, came in and were literally trying to drive out the indigenous people in order to take their land. I mean, their land is resource, quote unquote, is, you know, whatever. And she she wanted to read the Bible because she wanted to understand the mindset and the, the thought process of her oppressors. Wow. So she read the, the Bible because she was like, well, this is the book that my oppressors read. Let me try and understand their thinking. And in that, you know, she read the story of David and Goliath and she thought, wait a minute, I am David. We are David. <laughs> like this, and the Bible inspired her um, to, you know, fight back and it inspired her to take the position of her, of her marginalized community. And, and so they literally did. I mean, they stood their ground and they fought back against the oppressors thanks to her reading the Bible. And so I do think that um, to the post-colonial subject, and it's hard to say because they're always they have always been met by the white Jesus. They've always been met. I mean, that is, you know, Catholicism has infiltrated Latin America, has, I mean, you have right now so much of their religiosity is a, a coming together of an indigenous 
god of a, of a you know of a local native religion and also of a white you know catholic i mean even my grandmother's i would say my grandmother's faith i mean she knew white jesus through the catholicism that was yeah. introduced to her but they made it their own right i mean they that's where you have so many of these saints that are subversive in their own ways yes. and so i think it's it is it's it's muddy it's muddled i think um but because of the way that so many of our marginalized siblings you know privilege doesn't cushion them to in, in many ways there that cushion of privilege is removed and they can see the genuine Jesus of los humildes in a way that many who carry varying levels of privilege cannot. And so I think that Jesus, to answer your question, has always existed and does exist in the imagination of the, of the you know, colonized person. Mm. Um, but I do think that, you know, it does take, and particularly for those of us in the West or those of us who have been introduced to white Jesus, it does take some removing of, you know, the whatever you want to call it. Um, we have to sort of take that extra baggage off in order to see it because we have been so indoctrinated um, because that's what imperialism and colonialism does. It indoctrinates. So yeah, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, as you're talking and uh, I think of, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, St. Peter Claver, but uh, not. Uh-huh. He, no, go ahead. I would love he, to hear he more. He was in the 16th and 17th centuries and is the patron saint of uh, African missions and interracial mm. justice. Um, he he was born in Spain and had this vision because we, you know, when we're so, when we are immersed in a certain kind of religion, that's uh-huh. all we know, and we think that right. it, that's the way our reality should function. And right. so, totally. You know, that's how he came up uh, in Spain, dreaming that the best thing he could be was a missionary. And mm-hmm. so as a priest, he came to Cartagena and he he was appalled at when he encountered the, the African slaves there. Right, right. That mm-hmm. he, you know, he said, I didn't know this is what I was signing up for. Right, right. Yeah. So he would go on into the holds of ships and put ointment on the wounds where the, uh, you, you know, where the chains had, you know, had damaged the, the right. flesh of the Africans. And mm-hmm. he would, mm-hmm. when he would, if he found out that there was someone uh, involved in the slave trade, he would not take confession um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from them. And, and so he became in some way, something of a revolutionary because his right. consciousness of Jesus, you know, his imagination of Jesus right. And during a, a very, very dark experience, still shown brightly in in a colonizing effort and religion. And I think right, that that's exactly. kind of what you were raising when you talked about how your abuelita, you know, how mm-hmm. how she experienced Jesus in spite of everything, right? Right, right, right. Definitely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's where these liberation movements began, right? I mean, you had like someone like Oscar Romero, who oh, yeah. the same thing, you know, he was like, wait a minute, you know, the poor, here I am living amongst the poor of El Salvador. And, you know, a lot of this is not lighting up with the religiosity of what I'm, you know, supposed to be, how I'm living or how the church is living and the actual poor in front of me. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I love that you use the word consciousness because I think that's what it is. There is a, a consciousness 
within us. But I think in white evangelicalism, many of us have been trained to ignore that, right? You know, we've been trained to, you know, not listen to our our own minds, our own hearts, because they can deceive and they are wicked. And so a lot of us push aside, you know, that which almost is like common sense, right? I, I, I always say that white evangelical, white evangelicalism, you know, believes the Bible is literal, right? In every aspect of the word, except for like all the things Jesus said about liberation and the poor, all of that is spiritual, right? Um, and I think that that's part of what keeps us subjugated is, you know, when we can separate mind and body, when we can, you know, there's so many chasms. And I, I talk about this in the beginning of Awanita Faith, how the, there was such a wide chasm between what I was told to believe, but what my lived experience was and, you know, what I actually witnessed in my community, but what I was told, what I was literally told was reality. It was like a form of gaslighting. And then all of a sudden this chasm starts to, to narrow and you're like, oh, you know, wait a minute, there isn't this separation between mind and body and, and you know, all of it is is together and all of it is, you know, it's all part of, of what it means to be a human and what it means to trust and believe in, in, in God. And, and I think that's what I'm arguing in Awalita faith, that, that all of the, the things of which we need to do to survive is theology. And by that, I mean, you know, and, and of course I look at my grandmother's life and I say, you know, how did my grandmother survive? Well, she provided for us by literally making clothes with her hands and, and she made food with her hands and she gardened with her body and she danced. And that's how she found liberation and joy through dancing with her body. And all of this is she used every single part of herself and that is theology. Now, white, evangelicalist, white evangelicalism has told us that only that which we do with our minds is theology. But I'm saying, no, I don't think so. That's not, that's not how it is for the majority of the world. <laughs> yeah, you just highlighted, I think, part of the, uh, the Black church experience. You know, it, mm-hmm. dancing has been such a huge part of oh, that. Oh, yeah. Sometimes the dance is saying more than the sermon said, you know. Oh yeah. About liberation, you know, about right. uh, about joy in spite of what's mm. going on. Right. And so right. I can I can appreciate uh you know that that aspect of your your story of your journey and you you know honestly you you give me hope. Uh you know mm. as as Thank your you. elder uh I, <laughs> I like to think that there are lights shining in uh in these dark times and i'm wondering if your what your what tell me what your vision for for church and christianity um might be in this era yeah well you know i think i love it the the verse in in i think jesus says it i don't remember but you know everything that that is in the darkness will come to light right like all of the darkness will be exposed love it and yeah i think that that's so good because i think that's a lot of what is happening and it's been happening i mean i don't think anything is new i think people have been exposing the darkness you know forever i mean different groups of people at different p- points of time but i think what's particularly happening in white evangelicalism right now um there is a lot of that there is a lot of exposing of darkness and people are you know decolonizing and deconstructing and all the d and all the you know doing all the things and you know um i i see I, there i am hopeful about it now i think what is difficult is when you're coming up against empire. You know, I always say that empire 
is all about the facade, right? Empire is all about, it's a farce, but it's all about the image that it puts up. It's all about the image of, you know, prosperity and the image of peace and the image of, you know, all these images. Um, but I think that, you know, one thing that, that one of my professor once said that I just, I think about it all the time is that when empire is met with resistance, it loses its authority. And I think that if we're just committed to the notion of resistance, I think empire will continue to lose its authority and how we, we understand, we're understanding it and seeing it right now. And I think if we just continue yeah, to, to resist and persist, and you've seen it throughout history. I mean, that's something that I wanted to write about in Melody Death Faith. How have women resisted and persisted in their resistance? And how has that changed the course of history? And it has. I mean, you know, talking about the civil rights movement and Joanne Robinson and, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott. I mean, if it wasn't for th- this woman and these women who mm. committed to their resistance and their persistence, I mean, they changed the course of history. And I think the same thing with, you know, women who who did the same in Latin America, who resisted against dictators and against empires and changed the course of history. And women in the Bible, I mean, you have Rizba who, you know, we hear about her, you know, two sentences in Second Samuel. But if you really read her story, it was her protest. It was her persistence at the unjust murders of her sons that caused literally a famine to end. I mean, there was a famine and it was because of what she did that God sent rain. And I love that because nobody talks about that because it was a, it's a subversive sort of resistance and it's a, a subversive sort of persistence that seems like it's behind the scenes, but it has, it just changes history. And so I'm seeing that now. I've seen that throughout history, you know, as, as King Solomon says, what has been will be, you know, there is nothing new under the sun and we will continue to see empire be empire. But I think we will continue to see, you know, those of us just continue to rise up and resist and persist and watch empire lose its authority little by little. Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at GodIsNotAnAsshole or text 805-703-8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.